Well, good morning and welcome to Grace Bible Church. We are here today. If you've been around any, uh, any time, an amount of time, you know that I always start my sermon with that greeting. Just good morning and welcome. Welcome to our church. Welcome to Grace Bible Church. As a matter of fact, you may have noticed that we generally follow the same liturgy or order of service. On the first, except on the first Sunday of the month, we have a communion service. And sometimes we have baptisms and we do the right hand of fellowship. But by and large, our services are pretty much the same every week, week after week. You may have also noticed that we don't have a lot of frills. We don't do a lot of extra stuff. Personally, I love music. I certainly love singing and worship to our Lord. And we believe, and we believe that our songs should teach us something about the Lord. So as we choose those songs, as, as the men uh, uh, as the men choose our songs, choose the songs that we do, we choose them based on their theological content, not necessarily their catchy tune. Like I said, we love, I love well-crafted music, but we believe that the content outweighs the style. Having said that, we try to choose music that we can enjoy singing together as the body of Christ. Truly, everything we do as a, as a church has, the, has unity as a body as its aim, and we diligently work here at Grace Bible Church to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's what Paul says in, in Ephesians 4.3. And in, in, in Ephesians 4.4 4 and 6, we firmly believe that there is one body, one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. We, that is our common testimony, is it not? Every Sunday we endeavor to worship our Lord as one body, the church. But I'm sure many of you have asked, I know I've asked, and I know people wonder, what is the church? What is the significance of the church? Why does it exist? Why do you get up on Sunday morning and come here and join together as a body? More specifically, you may have wondered, what is the local church, right? Why is the local church important? And you may have even asked the question, do I need to join a local church if I'm part of the universal church? Well, as we continue our series, we've titled The, the Church, Growing in faith and love, I hope to answer these questions and much more. As you may be aware, we're currently taking a break from our study. We've been normally studying through the gospel of Matthew, and my preaching and, and Keith's preaching has been taking us through Psalms, and he'll be back there next week because I will be absent. Please pray for me. I'll be in Arkansas uh, at a funeral of my, of, uh, my aunt. Uh, I will also have the opportunity to preach in a, in a church, my, my sister's home church, and so be praying for me for that as we, as we do that, or as I do that. But as you know, we've been c- celebrating, we've taken a break to celebrate Grace Bible Church's seventh anniversary. So we're taking some time to consider our situation, consider our past, and consider our future as a church. And for the past few weeks, we've considered Peter's final exhortation to the church in 2 Peter chapter 1. Now during that study, we briefly looked at Matthew 16, 13 through 20, where Jesus promised that he would build his church. Peter was the disciple, of course, that had answered Jesus correctly, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So considering the state of the church, 
and I mean the state of the church in America and in the world, and also the state of our church, considering the state of the church, considering the culture around us, or you might say the cultural moment that we're in, and considering, again, the current situation at Grace Bible Church, I thought it would be helpful for us to take a more in-depth look at Matthew 16, 13 through 20. I want us to better understand the nature and the function of the church, particularly the local church. So we want to go back to where the church actually, uh, we see the first mention of the church by our Lord Jesus. So with that, I will pray, and we'll read the text, and then we'll get, we'll get started. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning as we endeavor to continue this series, as we endeavor now to look at Matthew 16, 13 through 20, where our Lord Jesus, where you, O Lord, have declared, declared that you will build your church. May we look at that and have a better or gain a better understanding of what the church is and why you are building your church and why we are part of your church. In Christ's name, amen. Let's read Matthew 16, Matthew 16, 13 through 20. Matthew 16, 13 through 20. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, saying, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And also I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall, shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven." Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no, no one that he was the Christ. Well, here in Matthew 16, 13 through 20, we're going to find that Jesus gives three vital insights into the nature and function of the church. He has called his people based on, first, the realization of his identity, second, based on the reality of his work, and third, based on the recognition of his power. Now, we're going to look today at the realization of his identity from verses 13 through 16. Now, before we dive into this outline, we need to know and understand the historical context. So what is the historical context surrounding Matthew 16, 13 through 19? Well, look at your text in Matthew 16, 13. It says, now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. Now, as we approach this text, I want you to recognize that we are also approaching what I would consider the mountaintop of Matthew's gospel. In Matthew chapter 16, or chapter 17, that is, just right after this incident, he goes to the top of the mountain and he transfigures himself. He literally goes to the mountaintop. And I think that that is figurative to what is happening here in, in Matthew's gospel. But we're also approaching the climax, we're also approaching the climax of Jesus' earthly ministry. 
Jesus had been slowly approaching this moment for uh, the prior two and a half uh, years of his uh, earthly time, time on earth, his earthly ministry. Just prior to this time, Jesus had withdrawn from the crowds. He, he had largely avoided the Jewish leadership after many negative and, and difficult encounters with them. Back in Matthew chapter 12, Matthew recorded a major turning point in Jesus' ministry. You see, the, the religious leaders had accused Jesus of doing miracles in the power of Beelzebul, the, the ruler of the demons. Uh, that's back in Matthew uh, twelve twenty four. if you want to look at it. Of course, Jesus was doing miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit. But these wicked men, they didn't care. They, they didn't care. They were attributing the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit to Satan. It's that, it's that clear. Therefore, they were blaspheming the Holy Spirit, which is, in fact, the unforgivable sin. Some people ask, how, could I... Uh, could I be, could commit the, the unforgivable sin? Uh, the answer is, is that if you see the work of the Holy Spirit, you see the miracles the Holy Spirit is doing wrought by Jesus, and you attribute them to Satan, that is the unforgivable, unforgivable sin. I don't think many of us can do that. Just, just saying that. But they also asked Jesus to give a sign from heaven for the purpose of testing him. That's in Matthew 12, 38. And Luke eleven sixteen says the same thing. But he said no sign would be given to him but the sign of Jonah. And, and the sign of Jonah, of course, is Jonah was, in the, 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 Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster. So will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He's speaking of his death, burial, and, and resurrection. From that time, from that time of that, that incident... Jesus began then to teach in parables to obscure the truth from those who flatly rejected it, especially the Jewish religious leadership. And he began then to limit his teaching to his loyal disciples to prepare them for what was to come in the future. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, the, the religious leadership, they did continue to pester him, but he continued to limit that interaction as much as possible. And in Matthew... 16.1, we see that. The Pharisees and Sadducees came testing him. They asked him to show a sign from heaven, but Jesus continued to warn his uh, disciples to beware of the Pharisees and Sadducees' influence and, and their teaching. That's Matthew 16.6. Well, as Jesus continued to spend more time with his disciples, and as the religious leaders continued to pester him, Jesus withdrew into, further into Gentile territory. Ultimately, he, he and his disciples came into what is called the district of Caesarea Philippi, and that's in verse 13, chapter 16, verse 13. So what is then the location of, and what is the location in history of Caesarea Philippi? And what we're going to find is it's very important to understand what is happening in this passage. Caesarea Philippi was located in northern Israel, about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. This, this, this region is incredibly beautiful. It sits at the base of Mount Hermon, which is north and a little east of Jesus' home village of Capernaum. The area is part of a, a plain in the upper Jordan Valley along the western slopes of the Mount Hermon. This area is, you, you, just to imagine it, this area is actually the watershed for Mount Hermon, so it's incredibly beautiful. 
In Psalm 133, David even used the dew of Hermon as an analogy for the blessings of unity among the brothers. So as the dew comes down from the mountains of Zion, uh, that is an analogy for God's blessing. This area also, uh, just, just geographically, gives birth to the Jordan River. The Jordan River flows south from there, forming first the Sea of Galilee. Then it continues south along the eastern edge or on the eastern side of Israel to the Dead Sea. Now, you might envision this area as a quiet place to withdraw from the pressure of the, from the Jewish religious leaders. I'm also certain that Jesus went there to spend time in that solitude with his men. But little did they know that he also planned to reveal the Father's plan to them. We will also see, and we're going to see, that they didn't like it. They didn't like what he had to reveal to them. Now, before we can move on, though, We need to understand the history and significance of Caesarea Philippi. In the Old Testament times, Baal may have been worshipped in this location. And in the 4th century B.C., during Alexander the Great's conquest of the area, a shrine located in a cave, which is the source of the Jordan River, was dedicated to a pagan god named Pan. Pan was the Greek god of forest and deserted places, as well as flocks and shepherds. Formerly, the city was named Panion or Panios. Caesar Augustus gave the districts of Panios to Herod, in, Herod the Great, that is, in 20 B.C. Herod also built a temple of white marble and dedicated it to Augustus, Augustus Caesar. The historian Josephus called this temple Panios or Panium. Later in 2 B.C., Herod's son Philip II renamed Caesarea Philippi, renamed it Caesarea Philippi to honor uh, the Caesar Tiberius and himself. This name also differentiated it from another place called Caesarea Maritima. That city was located on the west side of Israel on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Philip also expanded the, 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 the sparsely populated area into a, a city. It became the capital city of the region and Philip's main residence. Later, Agrippa II took over this region and renamed the the city Neronius in honor of the emperor Nero. But after Nero's death, the name was changed back to Caesarea Philippi. Now, the question is, what is the biblical significance of all of this? Well, as I said earlier, there's a cave and a spring located there. It was dedicated to the Greek god Pan, and a temple to Pan was built in the midst of the city. Significantly, the the mouth of this cave was located nearby. Now, people would come to this place and make sacrifices to this god Pan. As a matter of fact, this area had been home to much pagan worship throughout the centuries, and you can even go there today and see the the result or see the, the, the historical evidence of this happening. Now, this trip by Jesus and his disciples is the only time that, that the Bible records, the New Testament records him traveling to Caesarea Philippi. Now, this ha- highlights the critical nature of this particular trip. After this, time in, after this time in Caesarea Philippi, we know that Jesus, according to Luke 9.51, set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, of course, that signified that he would face the cross. He was, he was on a direct course to go to the cross in Jerusalem to die. Now, 
here in Caesarea Philippi, on this trip, Jesus revealed the plan to the disciples. Now, I would argue that he also made a proclamation of the Father's plan to the demonic realm, and we're going to see that. So with that, let's dive into our passage by looking at Jesus' first insight. Jesus called his people based on the realization of his identity. Look back at your text in Matthew 16, 13. We, we need to begin by asking, what is the significance of Jesus' question? So what is Jesus' question and what is its significance? So when they came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? That's the question. Now, at first glance, you might see this as a simple question and exchange between Jesus and his disciples, especially Peter. Now that is very true. But I think there's more to this question than you might think at first glance. Those who have been in the hermeneutics class, those who have been uh, in the equipping, uh, getting ready for First Thessalonians, the men uh, are, are going to know that there's got to be more to it than just that. Now, I believe this question tapped into a common discussion among the religious elites and even the people. You might equate this common discussion to our modern discussion about Jesus' imminent return, right? We, we talk about it. And, or even we might even talk about the identity of the Antichrist, who that would be. As you know, there are several opinions about those things floating around. Well, you might think of this question, Jesus' question, as, as a one-time question, but there, I think there is a fuller way to understand it. I think that this was an ongoing discussion that they were having while on the trip, and it was an ongoing discussion that overall people were having. Now, I think this is indicated by the, the verb tenses that Matthew uses in Matthew 16, 13. Notice that it says Jesus was asking his disciples, saying that phrase and the, tense, the verb tenses could indicate that this was an ongoing discussion, an ongoing question. As you read the entire passage, this ongoing discussion must have culminated in, with the exchange that Matthew and Luke actually record. In Luke, it says... And it happened that he was praying alone. This is in Luke 9.18. The disciples were with him, and he questioned them, saying, Who do the crowd say that I am? So the question is, what is the historical discussion that I'm referring to? Well, look at your text at that question. Who do people say the Son of Man is? Well, those who have, again, attended my hermeneutics class will know we need to look at this question from a historical perspective. If I were to ask this question in a modern context today, most, of, most would know the right answer to Jesus' question is that Jesus is the Son of Man, right? That's the answer that you would get if you ask today, because we have the New Testament. But we have to constantly remind ourselves that the disciples wouldn't have thought in those terms at the time. They had not fully connected the dots at this moment in time, is what I'm trying to tell you. Now, for us to better understand Jesus' question, we need to look at the parallel accounts in Luke 9 and Mark 8. You see, Jesus' question would have made them think of Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, Daniel records a series of visions, and in one of those visions, he says, in Daniel 7, 13 and 14, and behold... With the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days 
and came near before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every tongue might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not be taken away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Now from Daniel 7, clearly what we find is is that the Son of Man that Daniel pictures was the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ. But the question that arises from this passage is, what is the identity of the Son of Man? Today, we know that His true and full identity is Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, this is His own most common designation of Himself in the Gospels. It is used of Him 80 times in the New Testament. Now, the Son of Man, just to be clear, is used two different ways in Scripture. God referred to Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, as, the son, or as a son of man. Now, I would argue that this address simply means uh, man. I mean, he's simply man. Significantly, it emphasizes Ezekiel's humanity and, his trans- and the transcendent nature of God. So, Ezekiel's humanity and the transcendent na- nature of God, especially when you consider both of them together. Now, in other places, such as Daniel 7, which I just read to you, it is a title of authority, a title of authority, and you see that clearly in Daniel 7. So when it is used of Jesus, we tend to see it as the title of authority, and we rightly tend to look at Jesus' question through that lens. Most commentators, including John MacArthur, believe that he is directly referring to himself So when he asked this question in Matthew 16, he is directly referring to himself with Daniel 7 as the background. Now, if that's the case, then Jesus is asking his disciples what people think about him. Now, I think the commentators are correct. When you look at the parallel accounts, we find that Mark and Luke tell us that Jesus asked them what the crowds believe about his identity. Now, I put those two verses in your handout, or you can look them up. In Luke 9, 18, he says, he questioned him, saying, who do the crowd say that I am? And in Mark eight twenty seven, he says, who do people say that I am? It's all the same account. Having said that, I want you to notice that Mark and Luke omit the phrase, son of man, the son of man. Now, I think that's very significant. You see, Matthew is witnessing, witnesses that is, that he specifically asked about the identity of the Son of Man. Now clearly, if you look at the other Gospels, he's referring to himself directly. Like, who do people say that I am? But I believe that Jesus may be pushing for his disciples to see the full implication of that question. I think that Matthew brings this out because of his overall theme, he is proving that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the king. His gospel proves that Jesus, Matthew's gospel that is, proves that Jesus is the messianic king who has been given power and the authority to rule. He's been given a kingdom. Therefore, we need to understand the full theological implications that Matthew's bringing out of this account, of his account, of what's occurring in this exchange between Jesus and the disciples. So the question is, 
What was Jesus' point in asking this question? What is Matthew then trying to convey with this account? Now we must remember that, again, the disciples did not know that Jesus is the Son of Man from Daniel 7. They didn't know that. They knew that there was something different about Jesus, for sure. They had witnessed his ministry. They had seen his many miracles. Yet they hadn't fully grasped the full truth and implications of his identity. Let me say this a little more pointedly. At that moment, when Jesus asked that question, Jesus was undoubtedly referring to himself. But I would argue that he was also referring to the identity of the Son of Man in Daniel 7, and that is why Matthew adds that phrase in, that, in, this, in his account. In fact, in fact, you could look at it both ways. I, he is obviously referring to himself directly with Daniel 7 in the background. Luke and Mark conf- confirm this to be true, but he's also referring to Daniel 7 with his own identity in the background. I hope that makes sense. In other words, they still didn't fully grasp his identity, but he wants them to put it all together. Therefore, he's not just referring to himself at this point in the conversation. He's asking about the identity of this mysterious Daniel 7 son of man. I hope that makes sense. Jesus was trying to get them to put together that he is the son of man, right? Does that make sense? Now, the disciples give various opinions. Look back at your text in 1614. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, I want you to notice that they give uh, various uh, opinions of the Son of Man's identity, not just Jesus' identity, but the Son of Man's identity. Obviously, this had been an ongoing discussion. So the, the disciples gave the standard answer they had heard. Some say John the Baptist is the Son of Man, Daniel 7. Um, Matthew 14, uh, this, uh, Matthew 14, 1 and 2, this is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead. That is why uh, miraculous powers were, were, are at work in him. So they're saying that, that Jesus is, has, uh, John the Baptist has risen from the dead and is now reincarnated in Jesus. Along with him, many Jews thought that, that again, that they'd been re- reincarnated and, and, and but, but Herod and the pe- people understood that, that, Something was miraculous here because they couldn't uh, understand Jesus' miracles outside of the miraculous. So they thought it was reincarnated John the Baptist. Others believe the Son of Man is Elijah. He was considered, Elijah was considered the supreme Old Testament prophet. Malachi had prophesied that that Yahweh would send Elijah in Malachi 4-5 before the coming great day and awesome day of Yahweh. John MacArthur points out in modern Jewish Passover celebration, celebrations, an empty chair is reserved at the table for Elijah in the hope of, of one, his one day coming to announce the Messiah's arrival. But still others, according to the disciples, thought the Son of Man or believed the Son of Man was Jeremiah. Like Elijah, Jeremiah was revered by the people. In the apocryphal book of 2 Maccabees, uh, Jeremiah is said to have hidden the Ark of the Covenant and the altar of incense in a hollow cave on Mount Nebo to protect these items from the Babylonians. Some thought that Jeremiah then, some Jews thought that Jeremiah would come before uh, the Messiah so that he could restore these items to the temple in Jerusalem to prepare the way for the Messiah. The same apocryphal book 
uh, depicts Jeremiah by uh, giving Judas Maccabeus a holy sword from God to use in overthrowing their adversaries. So, so the Jeremiah was seen because of this. Jeremiah was seen as one who as, as one of the, the the possibilities for the Son of Man. Or they thought the Son of Man might be one of the prophets. Now Luke gives a little more insight into this because he says that others believe that one of the prophets uh, had had of old has risen again. They'd been resurrected. Now with all these possibilities. The people understood the miraculous nature of the Son of Man. That's, that's, there's no doubt. Yet, the people didn't quite understand the full truth about Jesus' identity or the identity of the Son of Man in Daniel 7. Now look back at your text in Matthew 16, 15. He said to them, this is Jesus, but who do you say I am? Now, as I said, there are a couple of different ways to look at Jesus' question here in 16.15. Most, most commentators believe that he's directly asking about his identity with Daniel 7 in the background. If that's the case, then Jesus simply asked the question to see what the disciples think about him. At a minimum, he's pushing them to give their thoughts on his true identity. He wants them to give their testimony as to his actual identity. Again, I believe, though, that there may be something even greater at play here. Instead of direct, just directly just asking about himself, so I think that is happening, I, I also believe that he's trying to get them to connect the dots. What if he's trying to get them to see that he is the Son of Man from Daniel 7 with all those implications? Now, I believe this interpretation fits the flow of the passage and will help us understand it better. Let me put it this way. Jesus never uttered a word without incredible depth of meaning. And we also know that Matthew meticulously recorded the details of these accounts in his own gospel account. He tells us that Jesus, Matthew that is, tells us that Jesus specifically asked about the, the identity of the Son of Man. And I believe this is, the question is, is, is why did, the question that is, is why did Jesus word it in that way? Why did he say what he said? Again, I believe Jesus wanted his disciples to connect the dots. I believe Matthew wrote this in such a way that we would connect the dots. In the, the Greek, the, the you in the question is plural and emphatic. You see, Jesus is putting them on the spot. He wants them to give their testimony of their understanding of his true identity. Now look back at your text in Matthew 16, 16. It says that Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now here we see that Peter pipes up and he speaks for all of them. He says that Jesus, the man Jesus that's sitting right before them, is the Christ. He is the Christ. This is the Greek term for the Messiah, the, the long-awaited Messiah. God had spoke of his coming from the very beginning in the garden. In Genesis 3.15, he spoke of one who, uh, the seed of the woman who would bruise the serpent on the head and shall be bruised on the heel. You see, he was the long-awaited, the Messiah was the long-awaited deliverer of, is, of Israel. He was the high priest, the prophet, the king. He was their savior. 
John the Baptist had witnessed that he was the Son of God. John had also declared that he was mightier than himself and was unfit to remove Jesus' sandals. Andrew's brother, Andrew Peter's brother said when he saw him, he met uh, Jesus, that they had found the Messiah. Nathaniel declared Jesus to be the Son of God and the Son of Israel, or the King of Israel. And they were looking back and they were understanding that there was this messianic hope and they were saying that Jesus was that, that Christ, that he was the, the, the one who had come to save them. And I would argue that the disciples' time with him had only cemented their, their belief. They had been given more and more evidence of his divine nature, of his power, of his authority. Yet, they had still had their ups and downs about who he was, about his true identity. Here's the problem. The, the Jews expected a conquering, reigning Messiah who would deliver his people. He would liberate them from their enemies and he immediately establish his kingdom on earth. Jesus had clearly demonstrated his miraculous power. He had caused the blind to see. He made the lame walk. He had cleansed lepers, he, le lepers, that is. He had made the deaf to hear. He had even raised the dead. The disciples had seen these things with their own eyes, yet they were still confused because of this. Because Jesus didn't use his power to drive out the Romans. He didn't use military force of any nature. He even said in Matthew 26, 53, he could have called down 12 legions of angels. Yet he chose to act in humility. He chose to act as one who came, did not come to be served, but to serve. Similarly, similarly John the Baptist, who had said that this is the Lamb of God, right? John the Baptist said that, but... But he wavered when he was sitting in prison, awaiting his fate at the hands of evil men. Uh, John or Matthew tells us in Matthew eleven one through three. Now when now when uh, John in prison heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to, the, to him, "Are you the one, or shall we look for someone else?" He was doubting. John had baptized Jesus and declared him to be the Lamb of God, the, of God who takes away the sins of the world. He, he heard a voice out of heaven in Matthew 3.17, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Yet even at that point when he was sitting in prison awaiting uh, execution, uh, he even wonder, he wondered whether Jesus was the Messiah. In the words of John MacArthur, Jesus' miracles were clear evidence of his messiahship, but his failure to use those powers to overthrow Rome and to establish his earthly kingdom brought Jesus' identity into question, even with the godly, spirit-filled John, end quote. And by the way, people are still doubting even today, right? That he was who he said he was. Because he hasn't come in power the way they would expect. Now back in... Matthew 16, 16, Simon Peter answered Jesus without a shred of doubt. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. At that moment, in that place, Peter stood up and he proclaimed Jesus' true identity. He proclaimed Jesus as Christ, the Messiah, and as the Son of God. It took two and a half years for him to come, or for that, the disciples to come to that place of understanding 
in the future, as we have saw in the past few weeks, they would experience times of failure. Peter would go on to deny Christ three times at Jesus' trials. Yet from that point forward, he would never doubt Jesus' true identity. At that moment, in this place, and I want to emphasize, in that place, Peter confessed the Son of God was all, or Son of Man was also the Son of God. Now, the Son of Man, the title emphasized Jesus' humility and his humanity. The second person of the Trinity, eternal in nature, left the glory of heaven taking on human flesh. He emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men, by being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And we see the title Son of Man highlights his humanity in that way. But also the Son of Man, the title also emphasizes power, his authority, and his judgments. In John 5, 27 The Father gave the Son authority. He gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. In Matthew 26, 64, Jesus told the high priest that he would see the Son of Man. He would see the Son of Man, um, uh, the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power coming on the clouds of heaven. So we see that that Son of Man title emphasizes his authority. And we see that prophetically in Daniel 7, which we showed earlier. The title emphasized that Jesus is the Son of Man that would be given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, and that all nations and people and men of every tongue might serve Him, that His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not be taken away, and His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. We see the full power and authority in that, and that prophecy will come to full fruition in Revelation 5, 6-8, when Jesus the Son of Man, the Lamb of God, will come to take the scroll out of the right hand of him, him who sits on the throne, and he will be given dominion and authority, and his kingdom will not be destroyed. On the other hand, his title of Son of God emphasizes deity. You see, he is God, very God. He is the creator of the universe and all that it contains. When it says in Psalm 24, 1, the earth is Yahweh's and as well as its fullness, the world and those who dwell in it, uh, the, the writer of uh, David who wrote that psalm is speaking of the Lord Jesus. In him, uh, according to Paul, in him all things were created both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been made, created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in, all, in him all things hold together. You see, Jesus was not just a man. He is the Son of God and the Son of Man. He is 100% man. He is 100% God. He is God dwelling in the form of man. He is the one true God. And the disciples had come to finally understand and realize his true identity. Now let me give you the significance of the setting. Why Caesarea Philippi? You may recall there was a cave there dedicated to the god Pan. The cave was located in a very large rock formation. Later, a temple was built in that same place. I was actually was able to visit that area back in 2017. It's an incredible area. But I want you to, t- to look briefly at Matthew 16, 17. We're going to see this more in depth starting next week. 
1617, Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. So it's spiritually, uh, it's spiritually understood. But my Father who is in heaven, so the Father is the one who reveals this truth through the Spirit. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, this gets into the next vital insight that we're going to see starting next time in two weeks, the reality of his work. See, I believe that Jesus was very particular and under the Father's, Father's direction in choosing this particular place because he was declaring, I would argue he was declaring not only to his disciples but to the demonic realm, to the demonic realm, to the powers and authorities, that he is that Daniel 7, son of man, and the Revelation 5, son of man, and that he is, in fact, the son of God. It is upon, <coughs> it is upon the proclamation of that truth. It is upon, let me say that again. It is upon the proclamation of that truth that he will, in fact, build his church. He is also proclaiming directly to Satan and his demons, that he would give his people, his church, divine protection and his authority. I, I hope that you see the importance of what happened, what's happening here. He is declaring that he will build his church in spite of, in spite of the conflict. In spite of the spirits being against it, that he's declaring victory. Now, here's what's interesting. In Matthew 16, 20, 21, what would he begin to show his disciples? He began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. It was at that time that he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And later in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, after he had suffered, after he had died on the cross, after he had been in the grave, after his resurrection, he proclaimed to his disciples in Matthew 28 through 20, uh, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. It's on the basis of all that he had done, uh, conquering uh, sin and death and rising again and now being ready to ascend into heaven. He has declared all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Church, it is on that basis, on the basis of Jesus' authority, said differently, it is on the basis of the fact that Jesus is the Son of God and is the Son of Man, that we, according to verse 19, this is 28, 19, go therefore, that we go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That is the authority by which we act as His church. That is who we are. And we have been given that authority by Jesus, who is the Son of God, who is the Son of Man. Now, we're going to look, continue to look at this passage next week, and we're going to see the reality of his work and the recognition of his power. 
we'll also see how this connects to every local church in the church age. Specifically, we're going to see how this connects to Grace Bible Church. That when Jesus spoke those very words, when he gave authority to the church, that he gave authority to the local church. I would argue that we have been given authority to make disciples and to teach Jesus' commandments. We've been given authority to preach his word to a nation, to a, to a world that's lost and dying who needs to hear his word. They need to hear uh, the prophetic word preached, the truth of the word of God preached because they hate it. But there will be some to come to know him. We also have the confidence that he'll be here even to the end of the, be with us even to the end of the age. He'll protect us. The gates of Hades will not overcome us. For now, on the basis of Christ's authority, we're called to preach the gospel to the lost. I pray if you're here today and you don't know him, if you don't know him as your Lord and Savior, I pray that you will come to him. I, I beg you to come to him. He, he beckons you to come. I love the verses in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. He himself, he himself beckoned us and beckoned you. If you don't know him, here's his call. In Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, Jesus promises in John 6, 47, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Today, today, don't let another moment go by. Don't let another moment go by. If you don't believe in him today, Today is the day of salvation. Turn to Him. You never know what time you have left. Don't leave it to chance. There's an incredible promise in John 6. He, he also proclaims to you. He said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. He beckons you, come, come today. And if you're here today and you know him, he beckons you to just trust in him. Trust in, in his word. Trust in what he's promised because he'll never let you down. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you. Lord, we, I just pray that our people would, just your people would make the connection here and the authority that you've been given, the authority of a kingdom and a dominion that will last forever. And I pray that our people will grasp, that your people would grasp here, Lord, that, that we can be a part, we are a part of this kingdom, that in Christ that we, we reign. And Lord, if there be people here who don't know you, 
Lord, I pray that they would understand your call. And that your call on their heart, that they would come and to know you, that they would trust in you as their Lord and as their Savior. And that they would walk for the rest of their days, whatever those are, in, in you. And Lord, that they would enjoy you for all eternity. In Christ's name, amen.